So let's hear it for Amy Jo. So good morning, everyone. What a beautiful day. A great weekend. So Lori and I celebrated 34 years last night. Yeah, it was great. I was 14 when we got married. And I actually have the pictures to prove it. No wonder her parents weren't so keen about me marrying their daughter. Um, so um, it's a great weekend. It's great to be here. Uh, my name's Mark, if you're a guest, one of the pastors. And um, before, before we get into 1 Corinthians today, let me just connect some dots here, okay? So Amy's story is happening by the grace of God because of people like you who are serving in this place and actually giving and supporting the ministries of this place. So um, I, I just want to say thank you. One of the things we talk about is there's a pathway to growing as a Christ follower. What we're doing right now, gathering on the weekend, that's part of it. Growing in groups, uh, you know, around Christ's words, caring for each other, serving together. Uh, groups are like escalating more people in groups than ever before. We're going to have over a thousand people in groups. So way to go, way to access that. That's huge. Um, and then we talk about giving of ourselves. So our time, our talents, and our treasure. So I want to connect the dots that when you give here, you're helping make these stories of life change happen. And you may wonder, so um, where, where does the money go? And you may wonder, man, this is a big place. You got really nice buildings and so who supports this? You must have some outsiders, governmental grants. or No, no, no. This is all the people of the church that support the work of the church. And when you give here, a third of what you give goes to, and, and this is kind of a, it's, it's simplification, but it's really helpful to understand it. So a third goes to helping people come to know Christ, okay? Reaching people who don't know Christ. So th that, could be, um, that, that could be kids in our community, so we're all about reaching kids with things like upwards basketball or the soccer camps or Awana Ministries in the midweek. We're into reaching kids through our partnerships with schools, teachers, adopting teachers, partnering with schools. We're all about reaching kids that don't know Christ in places like Pine Ridge, South Dakota, the Indian Reservation, places like New Orleans, our partnership down there. We're into reaching kids in places like Monrovia, Liberia, partnering with Vision Trust. So when you give here, you're helping us reach people who don't know Christ, like the people maybe who are part of Exploring Christianity, the Alpha Ministries here, the other outreach ministries locally, globally. If you give here, a third of what you give here goes to helping people grow to be more like Christ. What we're doing here on the weekend with our kids, student ministries, our group ministries. And then the last third is it supports the ministries that we have that are reaching out for, to people and helping people grow in Christ. So here's the deal. We're starting a new ministry year. Our fiscal year starts. So here's what typically happens in our church and most other churches. You start the year and it's a little slow and you're getting a little bit behind and you're chasing it all year. That like happens. The 30 plus years I've been in ministry, it like happens every year, all right? But we don't want to be typical. We don't want to be the average church. Here's the other thing that's typical and average, that half the people that come to a church give and half the people don't yet give. We're average in that as well. So this year we're moving to a $3.1 million budget. That's 300,000 more than last year's income, okay? 
So that means for those of us who are giving, we need to increase our giving at the, at the cost of $6 a week. That's like really doable. So you know that spice latte pumpkin thing that you've got on your mind to grab at Star, Starbucks? Just get one this week instead of two. You're good, all right? So if you think about this, some of us are going, well, I don't have that much and it won't make a difference. Actually, for those of us who aren't on board, a small gift of like $10 a week could make a huge difference when we're together giving, like a half a million dollar gift. A difference. And so I want to encourage you, thank those of you who are part of it, encourage those of you who aren't, you can make an investment that is so unlike any other investment you make. And that is, you know God always uses it for an eternal difference. So Lori and I give online, 40% of the people here at Door Creek, that's how they give. If you're new here, you go, yeah, what's the deal, man? There's no offering. We don't, we don't do that here because we don't want to confuse people in what we're on about here. We're on about here about Christ and we don't want to let an offering plate confuse the issue. So there's offering boxes, but the truth is 40% of Door Creekers give online. Here's what's great about it. It's safe, it's secure, it's flexible. And what I love about it is we make commitments, say this is what we want to give this year. And before when we weren't giving online, we'd always fall short because we're not always here every, every week, right? So the beauty of online is you can plan your giving and you can grow your generosity through that tool. So thanks for helping make Amy's story and hundreds of other stories like that be part of the normal day-to-day life of being a church family here for Christ. Let's pray. So Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you that your word reminds us that the only reason we're here is because you pursued us first. You loved us first. You've given your son first. And so uh, may our time together as we've been singing your praises as we come to your word and especially the cross May it grow our love for you. May it open our eyes to your love for us that we might love you more and be better positioned to love those you've called us to serve in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name for his glory. God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so we're in Corinthians. RD opened us up last week. We've got the second half of chapter one all the way through chapter two, pretty big section. So buckle up, all right, buckle up. So Corinth, ancient city, you see it here on the map. Modern-day Greece, so the little brown dot there of Corinth is uh, reminding us that Corinth's a little bit like Madison. It's, it's situated there on this isthmus. You can see the stretch where Corinth is. is a very thin strip. That explained why it was not only a port city, but actually it was a place where sailors would cut their voyage by a lot by actually dragging some of their sailing vessels across that strip of land. It was the wealthiest city in Achaia at the time, even wealthier than Athens. At the time that Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, it's a city of about 100,000, 80 in the city itself, 20 in the surrounding villages. It's a, it's a, a Roman colony. Ju- Julius Caesar rebuilt it in 44 BC. So that'd be 100 years prior to where Paul's writing and the times where he was there in Corinth for that year and a half when he planted the church and had it established and growing. It was, the church is made up of some Jews, but mostly Greeks. What we need to know about the Greeks is they love sports, like we love sports. So there was an 18,000 seat uh, you know, Colosseum, you know, think the Cole Center. There was a 3,000 seat theater uh, for the arts. They had their own version of our farmer's market. That was a big deal. Rhetoric, wisdom, uh, the games they had, uh, the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games, and they had temples all around. 
And over the, the, the biggest hill overlooking the city, there was the, the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there was just a lot of sensuality and it was mixed in with their religion. The, the temple to Aphrodite was large enough to house a thousand temple prostitutes. So it was a crazy place in so many ways. The values, the Greek values, the values of Corinth were you know, individualism, equality, freedom. And they, they actually had a thing about uh, authority and distrusting authority figures. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it was said that really what ruled them were their own desires. And there was no law but their own desires. And this is the church that we meet up with. These people are coming out of that culture. But, you know, just like us, it's easy for the things of the world to shape us and those things are part of the church. So Paul's left He's now in Ephesus. He's been hanging out there for three years. And now he's writing a letter back to the church because he's heard a report. And in chapter 1, verse 11, the report comes from one of the families, Chloe's family. We don't know anything other than it was Chloe's family. And somebody gets to Paul from Chloe's family and says, Paul, it's blowing up in Corinth and we need your help. There's all this infighting and there's all this divisiveness and division that's going on. And they, they list the things that are going on. And he writes this letter to address these issues that are dividing it. And his purpose is clear in writing it, chapter 1, verse 10. I want you to be united in thought, in mind, in purpose, in heart, around Christ and the gospel. I want you to be united. And so he's writing this letter to address these issues. He's also writing this letter to address some of the questions and concerns that they have. We'll pick up those in chapter 7 to the end of the letter. So the first issue that he addresses is what I call bobblehead Christianity. All right, so you've never heard that term. I hadn't either, but I love it. So bobblehead Christianity. You know what bobbleheads are, right? So we go to a, we, you know, we go to Lambeau and if it's a good day, you know, we may get one of the bobbleheads of one of the star players. So I, you know, you know, I'm a Chicago Bear fan and I was looking for some bobbleheads, but I found out there actually are no Chicago bobbleheads in this century. So I have to show you some Packer ones. So, all right, so here we go. So we got, you know, we got the old infamous Brett Favre, we got Donald Driver, we got the man, Clay, and we've got Aaron Rodgers, right? So bobbleheads are these stars of our teams and, you know, you touch the head and it just, it's great. We love bobbleheads. You know, some of us had bobblehead dogs in the back of our cars and we love that too. Okay, what is a bobblehead? A bobblehead is a leader that we put on a pedestal and made them the main deal. And Christ isn't the main deal anymore. So in Corinth, the bobbleheads were guys like Apollos. What we know about Apollos is the dude was an amazing speaker. Man, could he turn a phrase. Man, could he use the wisdom and the sophistry and all the clever eloquence and rhetoric of the day to just wow people with his teaching. There was a whole camp. This was a bobblehead that was around Paul and they loved just seeing Paul. Everybody loved Paul, right? Because he's the founder. Well, not everybody, but the Paul group did. And then there was a group who loved Peter. I'm thinking these probably were some of the Jewish guys in the church because Peter was a Jew who loved the Jews and he was a man for the Jews. And so you had that group. And so Paul comes in to say, there's a problem. We're divided here over leaders, and it's a big deal to Paul, which ought to mean it's a big deal to us. And it was a big deal to Paul because it was a big deal to God. And we know it's a big deal to Paul because he spends chapters one, two, three, and four talking about this bobblehead factor. That's a lot. He's going to deal with a lot of other issues. 
but four on this. Why, why would Paul spend four chapters? Why is this a big deal to God, to Paul? Here's the deal. Whenever a marriage, a family, a team, um, whatever it is that you're working on, your, uh, a work project, whatever, when it gets divided, it doesn't work well for the team and their goals. For the team and whatever it is they're trying to accomplish, now we're not working on what's accomplished because we're divided here and we're infighting here. We're turned inward here. We know that divided, we fall. Divide doesn't just mean divide and conquer, but divide means we get conquered. And so it's a big deal. In fact, it's the last thing that Jesus prays about that's recorded in John 17, that we'd be united, that we wouldn't be divided. Jesus says, Father, I pray that they would be one, my disciples, your children would be one, even as you and I are one. The unity of the Godhead, Father and Son, that that would be borne out in the followers of Christ, those who know and love God. And he's, here's what he says. I pray that they would know and be one so that the world would know that you sent me. That there is something about our unity that moves forward the gospel mission of God in this world. How in the world will the world believe that they can have peace and be one with God if we can't be united and get along with each other? So that's what he's on about here. And here's what he says. The cure for bobblehead Christianity is to remember who it is, which leader it is, who was crucified for us. Because when we remember who actually died for us and gave his life for us, then we'll know who to follow. It'll be as clear as clear can be. When you remember who was crucified for us, we know who to follow. And when we're following Christ, he brings us into a transforming relationship. That's the beauty of the gospel message. It's about a relationship. It's not just about information about a historical event. It's about information that transforms us through a relationship with Christ that brings us into a relationship with the Father. And all of that, the transforming work of Christ into a relationship with God is mediated, is brought about through the power of the Spirit. So there's a lot there, but that's what he's gonna unpack. Remember who was crucified for you. Remember Christ brings you to God, a transforming relationship. And remember, all that happens, this transformed relationship, this new work of God in your life, this new life that you have through the Spirit. And apart from the Spirit, you won't figure it out. You won't experience it. All right, so here we are. That's the background. Grab your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. All right, so you're new to the Bible. You can see it right here. It's towards the back. Um, it's after Romans. It's before 2 Corinthians. Always thankful that there are table of contents. Don't feel afraid to use that. And I just say we're going through Corinthians this whole fall. So bring your Bible, whether it's on your tablet or your phone or grabbing one from the back, because I want us to dig in the word so we understand how it comes to bear in our life. All right, verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, miracles, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the antidote is the message of the gospel. It's the message of the cross that reminds us who was crucified for us. This is what he's preaching, Christ crucified. I mean, you think about it, you go, yeah, he could have said, and the message that I preach is Christ resurrected. And you go, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, that's so powerful. Who's ever been resurrected? There's a lot of people who've been crucified. Who's ever been resurrected? Why is that the focus of the gospel, the crucifixion? And why is it the focus of the gospel when Paul will say in chapter 15, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then we're a bunch of fools because the rest of it doesn't matter. Why is it that it's Christ crucified, not Christ resurrected? It's a pretty important thing to work out. Well, the resurrection of Christ would definitely help us conclude, wow, ordinary people don't do that. He must be God. Good for him. The crucifixion goes, wow, with the resurrection, good for me. Good for me. That God would send his son to die in my place. So the gospel is the message of the cross that reminds me that God loves me, that reminds me this is the guy who died for me. That's who I should follow. That's who's the main guy of the church of God, Jesus Christ. In chapter 15, he fleshes out the gospel by saying, the gospel that I received is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. All of it according to the scriptures. Christ on the cross died in my place for my sins. He really died. He was buried. And he rose on the third day, just like God said it would happen. It's not a new plan. It's God's plan all the way back, even before time began. So the gospel message is the message of the cross. And it's a message for all people. It's for Jews and for people who aren't Jews. Us, the Gentiles, the Greeks, everybody. So you could slice and dice the world in that time by saying Jews and Gentiles, everybody. It's for all of us. But we find out from the very beginning here that not everybody sees it as good news. There's a whole group of people, those who are destroying themselves, literally, those who are perishing, who go, this is a bunch of nonsense. This is folly. This is foolishness. For those who are perishing, it's foolishness. So why would it be foolish for the people in Paul's day in Corinth? Well, it's because the cross wasn't a religious symbol. The cross wasn't a religious symbol. It's a religious symbol today, and that's why we, we understand. I saw somebody had a, a cross on the rappel, lapel. I see some people that have crosses right around your neck right now. We get it. It's a religious symbol. That's why it adorns the architecture of church buildings, right? That's why we see people make the sign of the cross. It's a religious symbol. It was not a religious symbol then. It, it was like a horrendous symbol. So think the electric chair. 
There's no warm religious associations with the cross. This is an awful thing. This was a brutal death. This was a death for condemned criminals. No Roman citizen could be crucified no matter what they had done. So this is a horrendous, awful thing. So this is for slaves. This is for crooks. This is for people that were outsiders. This is for barbarians. This was not just brutally torturous and violent, but it conjures up all these thoughts of this is evil. This is abject separation and alienation and isolation. This is about corruption and about all that's wrong. There is no association of anything other than this is awful crucifixion. And that's what Paul says. It's just foolishness for the, Jew, for the Greek and then for the Jew. It's like this major stumbling block. Why is it a stumbling block for the Jew? Because the Jew's going, our hopes are in this coming king, this promised Messiah, who's going to come and establish God's kingdom, reign forever and establish his forever reign. And so how in the world could this be the king when he's crucified to a Roman cross? That's not a powerful king. That doesn't look like a conquering king. That looks like a guy who lost big time. It's just not working out in their minds. But that's not just the only reaction, right? For those who are being saved, to those whom God has called, it is the power of God, this cross, the power of God. Powerful because it changes everything. So in, uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans, in the first chapter, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. So the gospel message is good news for all, even though not everybody sees us as that. It reminds us who died for us, and it reminds us that the gospel is this paradox. It's just like, it's putting two things together that just don't seem like they should go together. That God's plan, the hope of the world, is found in this foolish message about this weak guy who ends up crucified on a cross and how in the world could we ever put together that this is God's son who's dying in our place in the cross on our own. It's just nonsense. It doesn't work. And that's what he's saying in verse 21. Human wisdom can't work it out. It cannot bring us to God. It cannot get us an understanding of, oh, I get it. The cross means this. God loves me. Jesus is God's son. And he died and conquered death. And it all's good because of the cross. It just doesn't work out humanly. Our human approach to the cross is, this is crazy. This is weird. This is absurd. This can't be it. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something else. But God says, no, this is, this is the plan. And this is true wisdom that trumps human wisdom. In fact, verse 25 just says, Our, God's least is way, way more than our best. Every day, any day. So the cross reminds us who died for us. And the cross then leads us into this transforming relationship. That's where he's going in 26, all the way through the end of verse 5 of chapter 2. The cross leads us into a transforming relationship so that nobody's become somebody's through the gospel, through the cross. Brothers and sisters, verse 26, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's speaking about them. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him, God, verse 28, it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, that you have a relationship, not just information. It is because him that you are in Christ Jesus and him, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. So wisdom now is personal. It's a relationship. It's personified. It's, it's in living color, not just written on pages. He has become the wisdom of God. And that wisdom of God is transformative. That is, he, Christ, has become our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, the gospel's changing them. The gospel's going through Foolish people that are weak, that are ignoble, that don't have any standing in the world. And God uses this foolish message through them to not only change them, but to change others through them. And so they become somebody in and through the cross. And it's not because they were pursuing God. It's not because they figured out, oh, there's this higher knowledge and I got the secret, I got the key. No, it's because God, verse 30, brought it to them. He brings us to God through the cross. That's the transforming power that brings us into relationship. And so it's because of him. And the transformation is seen in these words that you and I didn't use this week. Did you use righteousness this week? I remember there was a day not long ago when we said that was righteous. We don't use that anymore. I guarantee you didn't use righteousness this week. Holiness? I know you weren't talking about the kids, but you thanks for your holiness. It's so great, kids. Um, redemption? You know, there's a day we use redemption when we talked about coupons. Well, we, don't, we don't even use it for coupons anymore. We don't redeem coupons. We just cash them in. So we don't use these words. We don't know what those words are. We're reading 1 Corinthians. We go, hard words, theological words. I don't have a clue. Move on. Now, let's not move on. Because when you unpack these, now you start going, oh, that's, that's what's going on in the cross? Righteousness? That I have a legal standing before God? Not on the basis that I've lived this good life and I've met the grade, but on the basis of this righteousness that has come to me from Christ. So on the cross, Christ doesn't just take on our sin and the debt of our sin. But he gives us his righteousness so that when God sees you and me, he sees Christ because we're in Christ. Our faith is in Christ, believing that what he did on the cross, this righteous son of God who suffered innocently on the cross, always doing the will of the father, loving God with his whole heart, loving his neighbor, even his enemy to the bitter end like himself, that his righteousness got transferred in my account. He didn't just pay my debt. He gave me all of his goodness, all of his righteousness. So when I didn't have a leg to stand on, on my own character, in my own track record, I now can stand legally before God, declared righteous because of Christ. And how do I have that standing? Because his holiness has been moved over to my account. Not because I'm holy, but because he is holy and he's transferred his holiness to me. 
And then now that I'm holy and you are holy through faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but he sees us as perfect and he set us aside to live a life that is set apart for him. There's his holiness and then there's redemption. This is so powerful about the cross. It brings freedom from all the past that is separated from me from God, from the guilt of my past, from the penalty of my sin. It has freed me. And that redemption comes at a price. It's freeing someone at a cost. The price was he had to give up his life as a ransom. That's what Jesus said. Mark 10, 45. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. The payment, the free payment, the, the huge payment that freed us is Christ's death on the cross. So think about it. He's freed us from guilt through the cross. He's frees us from fear through the cross. He frees us from the power of death, the penalty of death, the fear of death. He frees us from ourselves so that we can love. He's freed us to love him and others free, huge, the transforming power of the cross where all things are new. And we don't just get a new start. We become new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 speaks of this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All right? So where does that leave us? Verse 31, no room for boasting. Where does that leave us? <laughs> Paul says, I, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and make him known. A commitment to know this one who died for me. Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter three, I wanna know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and I wanna share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him even in death. I want to know Christ. So when you know the one who died for you, it kinda makes sense. You, you wanna know who is this person who saved my life? If, if you were in this situation where you're walking along some water and you fell in the water and you were by yourself and somebody jumps in as you're going down the third time and you, you don't know how to swim and they pull you out and you know that person literally saved your life, you're not going to show up the next day, day at the table with your friends and go... Um, Guys, something really weird happened yesterday. I, I was walking, I lost my balance, and you guys know I don't swim, but I fell, I fell into Lake Michigan. But as I was going down the third time and praying to God to save me, some guy jumped in, and, 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 he, and he saved my life. And, and they go, oh, who? I don't know. What? What do you mean you don't know? Of course you're going to know who it is. It's you're going to want to get to know this. Bro. You're going to want to know who this is. Paul says, I'm committed to knowing Christ. I'm making that my singular point. That's what my goal was, that I wanted to know Christ and make him known to you. And so I wasn't going down the trappings of Corinth with all the rhetoric and all the flowery speech and making it and dressing it all up so that you get confused in thinking that I'm the person who's big here. That you get confused in thinking that I'm the Savior with the message. No, I'm a messenger pointing to the Savior. 
And that's what I'm about. So, Because I don't want you to put your faith on me. And bobblehead Christianity is elevating leaders on pedestals that only lead to disappointment. Because we can't live up there. We're going to disappoint you. Every one of us and any person that's not Christ is going to disappoint you if you put them up on a pedestal. I don't care if that's your spouse. I don't care if that's your parent. I don't care if that's your pastor. I don't care if it's your best friend. They will disappoint you. But Jesus doesn't disappoint. And Paul's saying, I don't want to get you confused. I don't want to veil it. I want to reveal it. I don't want to get in the way. I want to be sharing this out of a demonstration of the Spirit's work. So look at in verse 3 of chapter 2. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, not on me, but on God's power, the message of the cross. So he depended on the Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God that gives us the mind of God that brings the message of the cross to a place where we actually have a relationship. So let me tell you a story that I heard this week that makes the point so it's a story about a tunnel in Toronto. I heard it on This American Life. Maybe some of you listened to it. Ira Glass produces it. This guy's walking around a forest. He's a conservationist. I don't know what that means. I think he's some city official that has something to do with taking care of forests, right? So he's walking through the forest, and he happens on a tunnel. And it's 33 feet long, and it ends up in two rooms, and it's all really teched out. It's not finished, but it's definitely... It's well underway, and it, it's kind of high tech. So there's a generator down there, and there's a ladder down there. There's a generator because there's some lighting down there. There's a sump pump down there to deal with water and runoff and things like that. There's a rosary nailed up on the wall. And he tells the officials, they go down, they check it out. They're looking for clues, and they cannot figure out, number one, who did it? And number two, why in the world is this tunnel here? So, you know, Canadians, they're just nice people. And so they figured out, well, the way to find out is just ask the people to come forward. So they, put, they get it out in the news. And so people start, I mean, Toronto is enraptured with this tunnel. And actually, they're all coming up with different ideas of what it could be. There actually was a hashtag that said, hashtag terrorist tunnel. Because there's a whole group of people go, man, the Pan Am games are coming to Toronto in a couple of weeks. This is a den for terrorists. And they're going to blow up the city. And then there's a group of people going, no, it's not about terrorists. This is about druggies, and this is like going to be a meth lab. And then there's a group of people that go, no, that's not what it's about. These, these athletes are coming from different countries, and they're seeking asylum, and so this is going to be like a safe house to, to you know, get these people into our country, out of, their, out of their country. So everybody's coming up with these ideas, and there's no leads. There's no leads. There's no leads. So the police say, we got to get a film crew down there, and they go show it on the 10 o'clock news. And they say, does any, the, nobody's broken the law, but does anybody have information about this tunnel? Because we're all scratching our heads trying to figure it out. So there's a guy, his name is Boko. I don't know where he's from, but he had a heavy accent. Boko is a construction guy. He's got a company and he's watching the 10 o'clock news and all of a sudden he goes, that's my ladder. That's my sump pump. But I didn't put it down in any tunnel. And he's going, but I know who did. Because he had an employee, his favorite employee. His name was Elton. 
Elton, now that he's thinking about it, man, Elton's been borrowing shovels and picks and he borrowed my ladder and he borrowed my sump pump and he has been asking me question after question, how to do this and how to shore up that and how to support this. So the next day he goes to Elton and he says, Elton, I was watching the 10 o'clock news and Elton goes, it was me, it was me. <laughs> and so they went to the police. No charges, no fines. I'm sure the, the police said something like, Elton, just dig in your own backyard next time, all right? <laughs> so the question remained, why did Elton build a 33-foot tunnel and haul out, the equivalent, haul out the equivalent of two dump trucks full of dirt? Why did he do it? Well, Elton was interviewed by this guy who, wrote it up in McLean Magazine, and he said this, look, when I was a kid, I just loved forts. I'd go around the forest, and we'd try to make forts and clubhouses, and I thought the next wave, the ultimate kind of clubhouse, wouldn't be up in a tree, but it would be underground where nobody could see it and find it. And, you know, I've just been digging holes for a long time. And you should know this about me. I live with my mother. He's, you know, he's an adult. And my two adult sisters, who are always talking, and they're always telling me what to do. And you know what? A man's got to have a little peace and quiet. And so I just went down there. So Ira Glass, at the end of the story, says this. This is really interesting. When we humans today are confronted with something that's inexplicable and mysterious, we are hacks at trying to figure it out. And we go to the simple, easy fixes that come to us from TV, from movies, the novels, whatever, to try and figure it out. But we are hacks. And it took Elton telling us why Elton did it for us to figure it out. And that's how it goes with the gospel message. It takes the spirit of God, who knows the mind of God, to tell us, God, why did you build a cross and have your son nailed on it? Because if we don't have the Spirit's help on the mind of God of why he did that. We're just going to come up with all these goofy conjectures and be hacks just like the Canadians were. And until the Canadians met Elton, they didn't know why that was down there. And until we have the Holy Spirit telling us why the cross, we will not figure it out. We'll stumble over it and say, this is absurd. This is foolishness. That's where he's going from 6 of chapter 2 all the way to the end of the chapter. And so it's the Spirit of God that helps us understand and believe the message of the gospel. The gospel message, the cross, is understood and believed through the work of the Spirit. And without the Spirit's loss, we're not going to figure it out. He uses the religious leaders of the day to make his point in verses 8 and 9. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So without the spirit's help, we're lost. So here's how the spirit works. The spirit makes it clear. It reveals what we are freely given through Christ in the cross. Keep going to verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? Who knew Elton's thoughts in Toronto? Nobody except Elton. 
right? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Bible teaches this mysterious truth. God is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. All equally God. I can't explain it to you other than just I stated what is true. What a mystery. One God who exists in three persons. And the role of the Spirit, one of the roles, is to make us understand who God is, to apply the work of Christ so we can understand what's in God's mind. Verse 12, what we received is not the spirit of the world. The gospel message that we've received, it's not wisdom. It's not from men. It's not from women. But the spirit who is from God, that's how we got it, from the spirit, so that we may understand what God has freely given us in the gospel in Christ, in the cross. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. And this helps us understand what's going on with some of the people we're sharing. This helps us understand where you're at in your journey of faith, where you're going, still it's foolishness to me. Verse 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, examines all things. But such a person with the Spirit is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But the person with the Spirit has the mind of Christ, right? But we have the mind of Christ. So without the Spirit, we're not going to get it. This is kind of a complicated section. But if I just get it right down to this simple, simple, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you because you were a sinner that needed a Savior. Jesus Christ died to bring you into a relationship that is transformative with God. You're not going to get it unless the Spirit helps you understand it and gives you faith to believe it. This is what he's saying. This is why he was working so hard to not get in the way of the message. That's the power of God. So, who are you following? Do you have any bobbleheads in your life? They're going to disappoint you. Christ won't disappoint you. Who are you following? And when you think about who you're following, if it's Jesus... And then you want to look back and go, so how's he been transforming my life? We had dinner with friends last night as we were celebrating, and it's really interesting. I, I, I haven't known this woman except in years here and just really respect her as this godly woman, and we were just sharing some stories, how we met, fell in love, got married, and she was telling me about who she was, you know, when she was young. And it was like, not at all the person I know today. God's been transforming her life and in this beautiful, godly woman. And so if we're following Jesus, then we need to say, so how has he been transforming our life? Or am I refusing his transforming work by saying, hands off there, God. I don't want to surrender that part of my life. Are we being transformed by the gospel? So the beautiful thing about the cross is, it's just this strong visual of these dimensions, of these directions, right? So you got the vertical, the cross makes things right with God. 
horizontal. The cross worked out allows me to forgive others and to be merciful and to see relationships coming together. It impacts my relationships horizontally. How is that working? Is the power of the cross working out here in my marriage, with my friends, at work, with neighbors? It, is it transforming? And then I love this part, that it's not just about us and our relationships, but it's about the past and it's about the future. Do, is the cross transforming how I work through all the junk of my past that I really regret and wish I could just put replay? And we can't. But the cross deals with the crap of our lives in the past. Is it doing that? Or am I still, am I still a slave to all that? Trying to work up a record whereby God loves me because I don't believe what Jesus did on the cross is enough. I'm not being transformed as I work through the past the hurts of the past, the abuse of the past. What about the future? Does the cross transform how I think about the future? Because we're not fighting for victory in this life as Christ followers, but from it, and we know the end of the story, Christ wins. And does that change how I live today, that I know my future so I can be strong today and I can live a cross-centered life focused on Christ, serving Christ, and living like Christ, giving myself away to God and to others. And in that, pointing people to Christ. So the message of the cross says to you and me, we're loved. We're loved so much more than we could ever dream. That's what the cross says. And some of us just still are looking for that. We're still just insecure. The love of God grounds us to start loving back. The message of the cross, you're loved. The message of the cross is, Mark, you're more messed up than you realize. It was so bad that God sent his only son. And that Jesus said, there's got to be another way. Is there another way? The father said, no, there's not another way. So he went to the cross because we're more flawed than we realize. That's the message of the cross, that we can be forgiven, that I'm forgiven, not because of what I've done, because of what Christ has done, and that I'm free. I'm free to love. I'm free from the past. I'm free to live for God, not just myself. I'm free from the power of sin. I'm free to pursue God and others with an overflowing heart filled with his mercy, grace, and love. So is it still foolish for you today? It's gotta be for somebody. That's nice for you. Well, here's what I'd say. If you go, this gospel message is so new. I don't know. It just seems so weird. Then here's what I'd say. God, reveal yourself to me and go into a gospel, a short one like the gospel of Mark and just read it through this week. God, show yourself to me if you are real. And I just say, hey, you've got great doubts about Christianity, about Christ, about the gospel. I would say doubt your doubts. And doubt the things that you think are true, your convictions right now. And just do a test with God. And don't be surprised as you get in the word that God uses his word to soften your heart, open your eyes, and to begin to give you a faith that's now anchored to Christ. And maybe that's where you are today. You go, I'm, I, I think I'm getting this. I think I'm getting this. That's the spirit using the word to bring life. And if that's happening, then, man, we'd want to know about that and help you grow. So then you've become this new creation. You're a new person. The old is gone. All things are new. It doesn't mean all things are easy. 
I want to help you in this new relationship with God through Christ. Let's pray. So, Father God, thank you that your word says that your spirit uses the word to bring us into relationship with you. And so having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, we would pray that there would be people for the first time who would be marked by your spirit and through your spirit be brought into a new, vibrant, loving relationship that changes everything. Lord, we pray that this would be a Christ-centered church, that it wouldn't be a tagline on stationary, that it wouldn't be a phrase in a vision statement, but it would be what is proclaimed to every child, to every student, to every adult, in every service and venue and campus, that Jesus, you are the crucified Savior, the hope of the world, and that we would live out that message of the cross, believing that you didn't just call us through the front door through the cross, but you said, pick it up and live it out every day. May we do that for your honor through the power of the Spirit in beautiful ways that draw people to you who desperately need to know that you love them. In Christ's name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen.